Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Earlier this week, here in Bloomington, Indiana, the Bloomington City Council unanimously voted to reject the county commissioner's request to rezone the property where they're proposing to build a new, bigger jail on the southwest edge of town. A rezoning of the land would have finalized the purchase of the property, allowing the county to break ground. Many local residents, including those working in mental health and drug and alcohol abuse treatment, supportive housing, and reentry and jail programs, have pressured the county to instead invest in programs which reduce recidivism and the number of community members who end up in jail in the first place. Seemingly in response to critics of the proposal pushing for a focus on health care, the commissioners made a last-minute amendment to the land use proposal at the city council meeting to include not just a jail, but also a detox center, supportive housing, and a mental health treatment center. Discussion of specific construction plans was limited to questions regarding the plan to build a jail facility on one story. County officials have complained for years that rebellious prisoners are able to flood cells and cause water damage to courtrooms below. City Council members stated concerns with a lack of clarity about what was specifically planned, the generally scattered nature of many aspects of the proposal, as well as concerns about transportation to and from the site from those incarcerated and those working in the justice system. Finally, both community advocates and council members at the meeting expressed concerns about the questionable emphasis on treatment within a jail facility, rather than via existing community healthcare initiatives. Court records show that 24-year-old Alex Andrews of Fayetteville, Tennessee, a correctional officer at the Limestone Correctional Facility, was arrested on Friday. According to the Limestone County Sheriff's Office, Andrews is charged with seven counts of use of official position or office for personal gain and seven counts of bribery of public servants. Court records allege Andrews took cash for payments of contraband into Limestone Correctional Facility from about July 1 to November 3, 2022. In response to requests for more information on Andrews, the Sheriff's Office sent details not only on his charges, but also for three other men facing similar charges. John Ketterman and Andrew Roy were arrested about the same time as Andrews on Friday. Shamarian Dozier was arrested Monday. Ketterman was charged with seven counts of use of official position or office for personal gain and seven counts of bribery of public servants. Roy was charged with four counts of promoting prison contraband four counts of use of official position or office for personal gain, and four counts of bribery of public servants. Dozier was charged with seven counts of use of official position or office for personal gain, and seven counts of bribery of public servants. To date, now four employees of Limestone have been charged, but this is a developing story. In 2022, 226 incarcerated citizens have died in Alabama facilities where the current parole denial rate is 90% or above.
A 64-year-old man died last week while incarcerated at the state's largest prison near Wasilla, Alaska officials say. Morris Tilak is the 18th person to die in Alaska Department of Corrections custody so far this year, which is the highest number of deaths in the last decade. Tilak, 64, died at Goose Creek Correctional Center on December 11th, the Corrections Department said. Advocates have asked Governor Mike Dunleavy to order an independent review of the department in response to the number of in-custody deaths this year. Several people died after spending only a short time in corrections facilities, including two people who died less than 24 hours in state care. This year's deaths topped the 15 that were reported in 2015, which prompted an administrative review. The review found numerous problems within the facilities that contributed to the fatalities. Today, we hear from Isaiah Willoughby. Isaiah has been on the show before, discussing his incarceration due to actions on behalf of the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020. He was released from prison last March and is currently being held in SeaTech Federal Detention Center for probation violations and is being subject to corporal punishment. It took us three days to complete this short audio recording with Isaiah because calls at SeaTech are limited to 10 minutes and prisoners must wait at least one hour to call their loved one back after those 10 minutes are up. Given this issue, there are often long lines at the facility to make a phone call. A lockdown also occurred at the facility during our interview process. We begin our conversation by asking Isaiah what Seattle was like after being released from prison last spring in the aftermath of the George Floyd uprising. I noticed that Seattle, post for George Floyd uprising, that the Seattle marked units are not out. There's no marked units in Seattle. Like, you do not see police anywhere. That's one thing I've noticed. They're, and I've lived here my whole life, Seattle. Like, they're not out here. Not even close to how they were out there harassing their the South Precinct is closed. Firehouse, which is the police station, is closed. This call is from a federal prison. Where we live at is District 2, where I'm city council, that's South Precinct. They closed that whole entire police office operation down. That whole police station is closed. They're saying due to the lack of staff, there's 300, over 300 police officers have been quit, Seattle Police Office Department. So there's a lot of still border windows, a lot of property crime in Seattle still. COVID is over right now in society, but there's a lot of border windows. Downtown Seattle is still boarded up besides the Amazon area. It's the only area in Seattle that's nice and running full, but downtown Seattle is a lot of homeless encampments everywhere, like everywhere. I noticed that, and um, no police anywhere, like in marking new units at all. And I guess the, the response time is two hours from nonviolent or property crimes or any other non-urgency response. The response time is two hours. Yeah, but at least they're more exposed. At least the world knows the police are not your friends. They take your taxpayer dollars. They use your money. My mom owns a house. She pays top property taxes in Seattle. We've been paying property taxes in 1991. We still live in Seattle. So we got homes in Seattle, which are million-dollar properties now. I say Seattle's expensive, and they're still not helping people at all. And it's intentional because of the protests, the uprising. Like, it's intentionally they're not helping people, especially in District 2, which is South Seattle, the BIPOC community. Next, we hear from Isaiah about his difficult reentry process. Based on the Second Chance Act, which requires the director of the BOP, Colette Peters, to ensure that a prisoner is serving a time of imprisonment. So I did a 24-month sentence. I was sentenced to 24 months for the conspiracy to commit arson, which is a Class C felony for the East Precinct. So it says that by law, Second Chance Act, which requires the director of the BOP, Colette Peters, to ensure that a prisoner serving a term of imprisonment spends a portion of the final month of that term 
not to exceed 12 months under conditions that will afford that prisoner a reasonable opportunity to adjust to and prepare for their reentry into the community, such as halfway house residential center. So I, 21 months in, when I did an interview with you in February, they never gave me halfway house, even though there's a law that says you must notify the court of extraordinary circumstances that will make me not comply with conditions of release. So my probation officer, which is Ms. Potter, should have told Kuhnhauer, my court, that Mr. Willoughby did not get pre-release custody. And so when I, I had to do more recognition therapy, which is the standard, I, had, it's a, I think it's a 12-week class that's contracted with the court, so it's for money system. More recognition therapy, they could pay for that. Uh, I did a mental health assessment, I did that. They wanted me to do an SUD, which is like a substance use assessment, so they can monitor my drug test. So I have no history of drug use, so they drug test me at least four to five times a month. So I've never failed for drugs or narcotics ever in my life. So my reentry is I came out, I had nowhere to go. There was no, they gave me no programs, no rehabilitation programs. I had no housing. Since I had an arson, I could not get housing back in Seattle. If I didn't have family or friends, I had no housing. I could not get a transitional housing. I could not use House of Mercy. There was Catholic Community Service. There was uh, Mercy B Housing. There was a uh, multi-service center, uh, coordinated King County gave me housing, but I had to get a job. So after, after they gave me a voucher for housing, I had to go find employment. So my probation officer never gave me a no, lawful employment. My brother has a business where I worked at, but I could not work for him because it's a, a barber shop, it's a retail store, but she wanted me to go work for a lawful, another company. So I had a day job at a, a carpenter called Synergy LLC Kent. And I, this call is from a federal prison. All summer. And I was making like 25 an hour. That's what I was doing all summer while I was doing my condition. And so I could not make it to my drug test. My drug tests were from 7.30 a.m. to 4.30. My shift was Monday through Friday from 7.30 to 4.30 p.m. The drug tests are from 8 to 4. Those are the hours you must drug test. And they, when they text you, they ha you get a cell phone number. They text you the night before, the day before, 4 p.m. You must appear the next day. So they want me to go to drug test the next day. My drug tests were twice a week. I make it $25 an hour. I'm going to work. Every time I had a drug test, I had to take off a day of work. I'm coming home from prison trying to get an apartment. I need three times income. Seattle, Washington needs to make three times the monthly income. The income, the rent for a studio is 1400 in Seattle, Washington. Like studio small. So you have to make three times that amount to get approved for apartment, which I was trying to do. But as I kept working, I had to take days off for drug tests, for SUD, for mental health. And so they're making my pay go down. So I stopped missing. I stopped going to my drug test to stay at work. I couldn't take more days off. And that's why I'm, I'm in violation. I, got, I missed five drug tests, and they said I intentionally did that. But I was excused for five. I missed ten. I was excused for five more. And that's why I'm incarcerated right now. It's for failure to uh, drug test, failure to SED. I made a $10 payment on my restitution. So when I got out, I had no half hours. If I back out, they made me do eight drug tests. So they made a different goal for me intentionally to get back to rehabilitative. Now I'm in custody right now where I can't even do the supervised police violations to have the programs right now I'm in custody. So I should be right now set this to half bails. I should be out of custody right now by law to do these treatment programs, but they have me in custodial sentence instead of a rehabilitative sentence. So I have a 90-day custodial sentence. I was sentenced December 1st of 2022 by Judge Kuhnhauer. I was in custody for 60 days when I was sentenced. So I have 90 days left in my sentence to get these treatment programs I'm in, currently in custody of CTAC BOP.
which I am not, I'm in a pretrial unit when I'm designated for Padre so I can get visit custody treatment programs. So there's a, there's a law where the OP Bureau of Prisons has to release me or can't release me to RRC, which is Residential Reaching Center, which is halfway house, to seek medical treatment or allow me to do medical treatment in here while I'm in custody. So I'm sitting here for 90 days until March 3rd, and I cannot complete none of the supervisor release violations while I'm in custody. So I'm right here, this is dead time for me, and I'm getting corporal punishment while I'm sitting here. But I could be doing medical treatment, I could do as substance use for alcohol treatment currently right now, I could do uh, memorial recognition therapy while I'm here for the next eight weeks. I could do mental health treatment program that my probation officer, Ms. Potter, has me assigned to. Right, at my probation officer, she added conditions, right? So I'm like, my probation is supposed to be SUD, substance use class, which is standard, everybody does that. More recognition therapy, standard procedure, everybody does that. Restitution, everybody does that. She wants me to do a mental health assessment. I did that, I passed. Now she wants to take mental health treatment. Now she wants me to wear ankle monitor. Since I'm running for campaign, she wants me to wear ankle monitor for 90 days, even when I get released. So I get released March 3rd, I gotta wear ankle monitor for 90 days on top of that when I get released. But yeah, she wants access to my bank account, my financial records, my credit score. That's what the police want when I get out. <laughs> this, this what comes with it, man. This what comes with it. We're going to get justice for Mandy at the end of the day. Here, we re-air Isaiah's experience of the police murder of his friend, Manny Ellis, before he discusses the upcoming case against the officers who murdered Manny. So my friend, Manny Ellis, he was my roommate. This, this is a story. So in uh, March 2020... Before, during COVID, I was working at Leshwell. I was a technician. And me working at Leshwell, my uh, my aunt, she runs a transitional housing program called uh, God's Hand Up. One of, my, one of her tenants in the house was Manny Ellis. So she moved in in February of the, the rent of her house, and I happened to be living downstairs, and I'm in charge of all the tenants that come in, and I'm supposed to watch and protect them. But, so I work all the time. But on March 3rd, I just got home from work, and I was talking to Manny, Manny Ellis, and uh, he just got home from church, the German church. So I was talking to him a normal day. It's a normal day in our life. We're going, we're going through COVID conditions. He goes to the store. I go to sleep. It's a normal night. It's a normal day. It's a normal life. Right? The store, the corner store, the Seven Eleven is around the corner, like a block and a half from our house. It's right around the corner. So the next day, I come back from work. I go to work in the morning. I get up at 5 a.m. to go to work. I get off work at 6 p.m. I get home around 8. And then one of the other tenants. Uh, Teresa, she is telling me that Manny Ellis is dead. He got killed. And that's when I, I didn't believe her. I said, what? What are you talking about? And then he got murdered. He was killed by the police. This was March 3rd, 2020. I go upstairs and talk to my aunt, Aunt Kimberly, and she's a landlord. And she says, yeah, he was killed. I said, where? For why? What happened? They had no explanation. My auntie said, we don't know. We had no idea what happened. There's nothing to explain. There's nobody. There's no nothing. So I walked to the corner store to see what happened. There's no blood. There's no body. Nothing. There's no balloons there. There's nothing. All right. I go, I go back to work. March 23rd, I get laid off from COVID. After everybody that closed the NBA, I get laid off from work. I'm essential service. So laid me off. I'm unemployed. So now I'm on, I get unemployment. So I'm sitting there at the house just relaxing, watching TV. Manny's room is locked up. He's no longer there. We have no idea what happened. And that's when I see Breonna Taylor on TV. I see the Ahmaud Arbery incident. I see all the other incidents. And then George Floyd passed away. And we seen, I seen it on TV. And so I'm in Seattle, Washington. I live in Seattle and Tacoma. So this incident happened in Tacoma where Manny Ellis was murdered. 
in May after George Floyd died, I got into the protest. Like I was not in the protest until after George Floyd died, but I got into the protest watching TV, but I didn't go to any protest. And then in June, June 3rd is when I started watching the news that night. I just happened to go to sleep. And then they show a bystander video of a cell phone footage of Manny Ellis, my roommate. He's getting beat and kicked and choked by the police. And then he goes, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And that's a, this is a little 30-second video we see on the news. And then he's getting choked and beat. And that's how I knew how he died. That's the first moment since March I knew what happened to him. So I went and talked to my aunt. and said, yeah, the police killed him. And some good Samaritans finally turned in the video footage. So he was getting hogtied first. He got hogtied. Then he got tased when he was hogtied. They put handcuffs on him, tied him, hogtied him. Then they tased him several times. Then they put a spit hood right over his head, and that's why he died. He could not breathe. He suffocated him. And he said, I could not breathe. So he was one of the first, and I knew him personally. He lived in our house. Like, this is how it stopped for me. This is why I got into the whole Black Lives Matter protest, and I ended up setting the fire to the East Precinct. So when I went, to, when I went to the chop, the Capitol Hill Occupy protest in Seattle. That's where I'm from. Then I've seen thousands of people there, and they're telling me that the East Precinct is the white supremacy organization or white nationalists, the KKK or Klan mentality. The East Precinct is a building where the police officers are white nationalists or white supremacists, where they conduct the operations. It's their headquarters. That is why all the protesters at chop were at the East Precinct in Seattle. Took that whole building over. So I was at the protest getting all this information from other fellow Seattle residents and my, myself. I didn't know. All my years in Seattle, I've never had a problem with police until 2020. Like in 2018, I've never, I didn't know it was racist. Like I didn't, I was oblivious to it based on my experiences until that time when I actually looked at my criminal record and seen all the petty stuff that was by East Precinct did to me. I didn't know it was white nationals or white supremacist organization. Those officers, what I was told at the protest. So on June 12th, I seen that on the news that they banned in the building. And I seen that they were somebody that wrote Manny Ellis' name on top of the building. So I went to the protest, and then uh, the night night I came back to Seattle, and I I got a gallon of gas, and then I set the the, the building on fire. When they I, they had it vacant, and that's when my charges came. And then I was I was charged June 19th on June 10th. I got arrested in Tacoma, and then I was arrested in Seattle as a state case. It was just a state case. So then I got bailed out by Northwest Community Bail Fund for 30000 They bailed me out. I was in a Fed case, and I was good. I was out. I was probably going to do nine months in the jail in Seattle. But then the Feds came and started picking up the case. And I was only I was the first protester charged in federal court in CTEC. That's when I was charged with federal 841. Look at that, five years, 60 months, mandatory. So they started making all the protest cases federal. I didn't know all this. So then... During my incarceration, during my duration of my tenure in BOP CTAC, Manny Ellis' case is going nationwide. His death becomes public. After George Floyd died, now everybody's looking to investigate. So his video footage is everywhere. So now he's getting press media coverage. My family's getting interviewed. We're getting interviewed. Now everybody's putting the two together. We're roommates. Then in May of 2021, the officers were charged with murder by Attorney General. The Attorney General, Bob Ferguson, charged the three officers who killed Manny Ellis with murder. So after they were charged with murder, then I told my attorney, Dennis, Dennis Carroll, that I would take a negotiated a plea agreement where I could get out in 2021. Cause instead of doing 60 months, they were trying to give me 60 months or go to trial, I took a deal where I could get out a year after I knew the officers were going to be charged with murder. Because that 
that shocked me. Like him just leaving and not coming back, I didn't experience anything like that in my life. Like him just being murdered like that, I never experienced anybody just murdered. Like walking to the corner store, and he never came home. Like he disappeared. Like it was a normal day for us. He just disappeared, and so I was, I went, I went, I just went lost him after that. After I saw the footage, and so I got involved in the Black Lives Matter protest and. I'm adamant about making a difference now that it happened to me. Like, I wasn't one of the people out there just watching, participating. This happened to our house, our family. The police came and murdered one of our friends from our house and the during COVID when everybody was pandemic. So that's how I got involved, and that's why I did my arson for the for that, for justice, for people. And he, he got, the officers got charged. Thank God the attorney general, his sister, and family all adamant about getting justice for Manny. And now, right now, the murder case is... Uh, they're out on bail for 10000 each, officers. They're bailed out by their brother of a construction firm, one of the officers. They're all out on 10000 each, 100000 bail, 10000 They're all out on bail. They're still getting paid right now, all the officers. I think the trial is sometime this year. Okay, so the court for many is postponed until September of 2023. The trial September 2023. And my auntie, Kimberly Mays, and Uncle Cedric Armstrong, are testifying in the trial because I was the last person to see Manny. I think they're going to have me testify. I'm not sure. But I was the last person to see Manny leave before he walked in the store. So when they tried to dirty up his name, say he was on drugs or all that, probably killed him. That's a, a fact. So if they had me testify, I'll testify. But at this current moment, probably set for September of 2023 in Pierce County. That's what's going on, Manny Ellis. So hopefully, and they're going to charge the charge with second degree. I think it's second degree homicide and manslaughter. Those are the charges for the officers. During the due diligence, they got a special prosecutor. They got good people of good legal representation to get a conviction. A high chance are likely to get convicted. We do not want the officers to get acquitted of murder trials. That would not be justice. So that would be detrimental to me, my crime, me being incarcerated for the whole bit for getting justice for Manny. So it would not have fruit of the labor. We want to get justice for Manny. The whole point of this action I did was justice for Manny. So at the end of the day, we want the results. No matter what, like me getting corporal punishment, me getting the petty hygiene, the, the treatment, the the unconstitutional, all the behavior here, I can take it as long as other people don't have to take it. I can explain it to those who are not incarcerated, what goes on in punishment for those who are protesting across the country for Black Lives Matter or any other protest-related matters. It's the same treatment nationwide in BOP facilities, state facilities, municipalities. This is called punishment, which I had no idea what it was, but it's all going to come into results for Manny Ellis' trial September 23rd. I will be out March 3rd, 2023, so I will attend the trial September 2023. But how many people get justice for, or even get murder charges for unarmed African-Americans killed by police? How many people have not had murder charges? Think about how many people are getting away with murder right now. So, me setting the fire, me bringing the tension, they got charges. Now we need convictions. Finally, Isaiah talks about his lawsuit against SeaTech Detention Center. After being targeted as a Black Lives Matter political prisoner, he describes the treatment he has faced at SeaTech, including cold showers, cold cells, and medical neglect leading to permanent damage to his hand. So I have a civil suit against SeaTech Municipal, correct, right now going on, right? I have a civil suit against this facility in 2022 against... Lieutenant Myers and Sherwood for Eighth Amendment and Fourteenth Amendment violations. This is what happens when they do. They did not give me my legal mail. Look, I dismissed. 
I've never got this at all, and I was in custody the entire time. They sent it to my residential address when I'm in custody suing the BOP when I was not released on March 29. But I'm currently in BOP custody when they, they dismissed my claim because I had no address. That was in Mendota. When they dismissed it, I didn't get released in Mendota until March 29, 2022. They dismissed my claim without prejudice so I can amend it March 23rd of 2022. I was still in BOP custody, and I never received the court documentation. So if I'm suing BOP staff and I'm still in BOP custody, there's no way I'm going to get the necessary documents to rebuttal my case. So I never got, so I just found out today I could reamend my complaints and do my litigation against CTEC because I'm currently in CTEC custody right now, which is I'm litigating against this location. They are currently violating the standards of employee conduct prohibiting employees from engaging in or allowing another person to engage in inappropriate visual surveillance of me here in custody at CTEC Detention Center. I was assigned to a dirty cell, cell 17FA, which was open for quarantine in October before I arrived when I was booked here. Case law Jackson versus Bishop is about eliminating corporal punishment in prisons. Corporal punishment in quarantine unit FA was used to inflict physical pain upon me as punishment for my political ideas of Black Lives Matter and past litigation against correctional officers in Myers and Sherwood. I was subject to cold showers. I'm currently being deprived of the means of maintaining personal hygiene, but not being provided adequate This call is from a federal prison. These conditions are constitutionally intolerable. I have the right to be treated impartial and a fair manner by staff. On December 3rd, 2022 in DC, my cell was searched by elders officer where he intentionally trashed my locker and threw out all my hygiene products. Therefore, any punishment that is not necessary to maintain order is cruel and unusual and prohibited by the Eighth Amendment. Unsanitary conditions in confinement are unnecessarily punitive in nature and violate the Eighth Amendment. The unsanitary conditions of a cell can make the punishment disproportionate to the offense. I was placed in FA cell 17 as punitive isolation for 20 days, October 27th, November 20th. It was an unoccupied unit, so the temperatures were below the 68 degrees Fahrenheit as standard operating procedure. Hospital rooms are exempt from temperature requirements for medical reasons. This behavior is malice and deliberate and indifference by correctional officers and staff to subject me to corporal punishment. I was denied medical treatment for a broken finger that is now perfectly disfigured. A happy New Year, Merry Christmas. <laughs> and Black Lives Matter, and we want to give a shout out to Tyree Means. He's in Beaumont. He's, he did the George Floyd protest in Seattle, Washington. They gave him 60 months. The same prosecutor gave me 24 months. Gave Tyree Means 60 months, and he's in Beaumont on shoe and corporal punishment has been treated to him so look up for other black lives matter protesters throughout the country that's how you help everybody behind this wall fighting this thank you this has been kite line thank you to everyone who helped with this episode if you want to support our work please visit patreon.com forward slash kite radio any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. You can also find us on all social media platforms. 
You can hear our archive of over 300 episodes at kitelineradio.org. Please reach out if you have a news item we should cover, if you want to volunteer, or just to tell your story. Email us at kiteline at wfhb.org or send us a letter at kiteline, care of WFHB, 108 West 4th Street, Bloomington, Indiana, 47404. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every week for more stories, news, and insights on the prison system. Thank you for listening.